This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 22. I'm Jim Geary. Today's topic, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 29A Stipulations. What? That's right, stipulations under Federal Rule 29A. If you're familiar with that already, great. If you're not, then I'd tell you you've probably been making Rule 29 stipulations for most of your federal practice. All right, so let's talk about the rule. The chief function of 29A is to allow you and other lawyers in the case to stipulate away just about all of the technical procedures or requirements that you'd otherwise normally have to comply with when taking depositions. Now, testimony still has to be under oath, uh, but you can waive or stipulate to the dispensing with uh, virtually every other requirement of the rules. Let's suppose that you arrange for a court reporter Uh, by example, and the reporter doesn't show up. Under 29A, you can immediately stipulate to audio taping or videotaping only. You can stipulate to having the audio tape transcribed later. Doesn't even have to be a court reporter. Could be anyone that can transcribe the audio and create an accurate record. You can stipulate that one of the lawyers representing a party can swear the deponents in. Generally, that's forbidden. Can't be one of the lawyers for the parties, but you can stipulate that away as well. And frankly, if you want to save a ton of money, you can use Rule 29A to stipulate that for some or all the depositions in the case, you and the other lawyers will simply audio tape or videotape the depositions yourselves without a court reporter, but having someone who's a court officer, such as one of the lawyers, or someone like a regular notary public, swear the witness in. You can stipulate under 29A to taking more depositions than the rules allow, to making the depositions longer than the rules allow. You can stipulate to making witnesses travel further than allowed under the rule for your depositions, assuming the witnesses are employed by a party or assuming that a third-party witness also agrees to do so. You can also stipulate to taking the depositions in any location, anywhere, at any time. You can stipulate to taking them on any day of the year, any holiday, any weekend. You can stipulate when you have a witness who is overseas to do it by video or audio without having to line up a court reporter in the host country or wherever the witness is located. So these are just some of the unbelievable benefits from Rule 29A stipulations, chiefly that you can eliminate virtually all of the technical obstacles, including court reporters, that will get in your way or add to your expense. And to be quite honest, a critical benefit these days of the 29A stipulations is that you can stipulate away the need for that court reporter. If you take any depositions at all, and I don't think I'm revealing any secrets by saying that my firm runs up about $20,000 a week in deposition appearance fees and transcripts, you'll know that the business of reporting has changed dramatically in the last four or five years. Many of the top local court reporting firms you've probably dealt with have been taken over by national firms, and those national firms have imposed fee structures that are making it all but impossible for smaller firms, especially solo practitioners, to do business. And if you've been reading my books and publications or attending my seminars, you'll know that I've been railing against the cost of court reporting for many years, and it's gotten much worse. So if you want to throw a tape recorder on the table by agreement with opposing counsels, you can do that under 29A. And if you've encountered those quote-unquote digital reporters that some national firms are starting to use with no discount to you, where they literally send an hourly rate employee who is not a traditional reporter with a tape recorder, then you'll know that even the large national firms don't think a live reporter is necessary. So you can drastically, drastically reduce the cost of your depositions this way if you regularly use 29A to stipulate away the need for a court reporter. 
Uh, by way of background, the rule was adopted in 1970. That was about 32 years after the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure first took effect. And as I said, its chief purpose is to allow you and the other lawyers to work around issues on your own without court involvement. 29A allows stipulations relating to all of the rules governing depositions, and that's Rule 27 to perpetuate testimony before a lawsuit is filed or on appeal after a lawsuit's been dismissed, such as where a judge has granted a motion to dismiss before discovery uh, got underway. Rule 28, which lays out the default process for depositions. Rule 29, which is the topic of this episode, obviously. Rule 30, again, on the mechanics of depositions. And Rule 31, uh, relating to depositions on written questions. So you can stipulate away the technical requirements, all but the obligation to put the witness under oath, under any of those rules. So Rule 29 gives you great leeway to fashion a less messy, less technical deposition protocol in your cases with respect to all these rules. And 29A makes it crystal clear that you can do this on your own between counsel, and that's all it requires is an agreement between the parties, a stipulation, but you don't have to go to court. Now, Rule 29 stipulations do not override a scheduling order unless your particular jurisdiction has a local rule that says parties' stipulations can include agreements to take depositions past the discovery deadlines. As you know, Federal Rule 16 requires uh, the district judges in most cases to issue a scheduling order. So your stipulation under 29A cannot override court-imposed deadlines. Okay, so I've included citations to about 20 cases in the show notes with short blurbs about what each case stands for. That should be all the research you need to do. I've included all of the major decisions around the country on 29A stipulations. And by the way, one of them is the Garza case out of the Southern District of Texas. And that decision talks about the need uh, to get court approval if you're going to stipulate to something that would interfere with the deadline set by court order. Now, that opinion recognizes two types of stipulations under Rule 29, one that the parties can approve themselves and one that requires court approval. So if the stipulation would have the effect of altering a deadline imposed by the court, then it's not effective without court approval. In fact, another court addressing 29A stipulations even seemed to take offense at any suggestion that the parties could override a scheduling order saying that the order isn't simply a frivolous piece of paper. Well, we know that. But some jurisdictions do have local rules that allow such stipulations to override the scheduling order as to how far into the case you can take depositions. Uh, You'll see that in the Thomas case out of a federal court in Louisiana in 2020. And again, that's one of the cases in the show notes. So if you want to stipulate and it will interfere with the existing court deadlines, you've got to get approval of your stipulation or be in a jurisdiction Uh, where the court has adopted a local rule that says you don't need to come back to the court if the parties agree to take depositions past a discovery deadline established by the scheduling order. And if you are in a jurisdiction where you don't have local rules that allow you to do that, at least one court has said that the good cause requirements under Federal Rule 16 will apply to your stipulation that you present to the court to extend the time period for taking depositions. That's the Garza case again. Rule 16, of course, is the rule where you've got to show good cause, which is probably a tougher standard than it sounds, if you want a court to modify a scheduling order. So if you've submitted your joint report of planning meeting of the parties to the judge and the judge has entered your final scheduling order, then you fit squarely within the obligation to show good cause under Rule 16, whether you're doing this in the form of a 29A stipulation or not. 
And as you may know, good cause under Rule 16 means you've exercised due diligence in the prosecution of the case, stayed on top of things, didn't warehouse your case because you were working on others until close to the end of the discovery deadline in this one. You've got to show that you've had some unexpected development, some surprise, some obstacle that wasn't caused by the failure to actively work on the case. So in the context of showing good cause under Rule 16 to modify a scheduling order, expect the court to look at your efforts uh, so far under a microscope. The common refrain that the parties have been working diligently, weren't able to complete everything as expected, blah, 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 are in complete agreement, usually isn't going to suffice under Rule 16. So the judges are going to look at the total time that you had to complete your discovery. They want to, they're going to want to know the dates that you took your depositions and conducted other discovery, and they'll make their uh, judgments based on that. So that's a fairly tough standard to meet, whether you're proceeding under 29A or not. All right, so that's the drill. As long as your stipulations under 29A don't affect an existing deadline imposed by the court, you're good to go. Now, you'll occasionally run across reported opinions where a judge has said that under 29A, the parties can stipulate to depositions occurring, quote, at any time, including outside of a court-imposed deadline. That's just wrong. I've got one case in the show notes to give you an example. That's the Epley decision, E-P-P-L-E-Y where a federal judge says in an opinion uh, exactly that, that, quote, under this rule, the parties may stipulate to depositions occurring at any time, including outside of the discovery deadline. But the judge in Epley was looking at the Hernandez decision out of the Southern District of Florida and apparently not reading it too closely. Because when you do, you'll see that in the Southern District of Florida, there is a local rule that allows lawyers to take depositions past the discovery deadline if there's a stipulation and without court involvement. So again, if you're hoping to stipulate to take depositions past a deadline imposed by the court, you'll need to be in a jurisdiction that has adopted a local rule saying that in the district, or you're going to have to get court approval. That's why the rule begins, Rule 29 begins, unless the court orders otherwise. All right, um, so next question, what does a Rule 29 stipulation look like? And the answer is, there is no set format. There is no approved form. In fact, in most of the reported cases involving disputes about Rule 29 stipulations, uh, the agreement was reflected in emails between counsel. So under 29A, a stipulation is a literal stipulation. It's an agreement, formal or informal, as long as there's clear agreement between counsel. I say to you, hey, let's do it on a Saturday at the beach with some guy with a tape recorder no court reporter, and I say to the opposing lawyer, you swear the witness in. You say yes to me, that sounds good. We now have a 29A stipulation. Courts encourage stipulations like this to pave the way for smooth, inexpensive depositions. And that's one of the things that the court in the Keene case out of the Southern District of Georgia said in an opinion. There the court said, look, lawyers ought to be making these kinds of stipulations on a regular basis, informally amongst themselves, to take advantage of technology, and to reduce the expense of litigating cases. And some courts don't just encourage stipulations. Sometimes they'll breathe down your neck a little bit. So where a sensible stipulation would allow the parties to work around an obstacle created by a rule, the court might put some pressure on the parties to use 29A. That's a lesson taught by the Stevens decision out of the Western District of Washington State. In that case, a pro se prisoner was suing the state of Washington. And in that case, a prisoner wanted to take the depositions of some prison officials. 
Looks like the case was being defended by the state attorney general's office there. So the inmate says, look, I can't afford a court reporter, so I'll rent a tape recorder. I'll pay for the audio cassettes and I'll pay for the transcription by some service uh, so that we can get a transcript. Uh, the attorney general's office there says, nope, I'm not going to agree. Uh, the court in that case, in its order, uh, very strongly encouraged the defense counsel to consider stipulating, failing which the court indicated it might impose those same conditions and sanctions as well against the defense counsel for failing or refusing to cooperate with the inmate in working on a Rule 29 stipulation. If you read that opinion, you get the sense that the judge was irritated. The prisoner was clearly trying to get things done, and while it wasn't within the rules what the prisoner was uh, proposing, it was within the party's ability to stipulate under 29A. And that was kind of an interesting decision because the court was essentially saying to the defense, you just can't rely on the rules as they're written. You have to be reasonable in how you approach these depositions. Uh, same basic outcome in another case. That's the Robinson decision out of the Eastern District of California, another inmate case. In the Robinson decision, the inmate had apparently noticed the deposition to be conducted by audio and video, but without a court reporter, and was asking defense counsel to perform the court reporter functions, the ordinary court reporter functions of swearing in the deponents and making those announcements at the beginning of the deposition that's required of reporters under Rule 30b-5, although in your experience and surely in mine, most reporters don't make those announcements anyway, at least not the complete set required by the rules. Anyway, that's what the inmate wanted. Defense counsel in that case, for the most part, didn't seem interested in even addressing the inmate's request for stipulation. So the court says, look, I'm taking the pro se uh, prisoner plaintiff's notice as a request, the notice of deposition that provided for improper deposition procedures without a stipulation. Judge says, I'm taking that notice of taking deposition as a request to you, defense counsel, that you stipulate to administering the oath and announcing who's present and all that. On top of that, the judge says to the defense, you've now got to confer and discuss this with the inmate and then get back to the court and the court will tell the parties what it's going to do. So that's another case where the courts are encouraging lawyers where there are minor issues that are caused by technical requirements of the rules to work it out under 29A, period. Courts are basically saying, work it out amongst yourselves. Don't spend time filing papers, motions, responses, and requiring the court to rule on things like that that the parties could work out themselves. So when you do this research and go through some of those decisions, it's clear the judges are acknowledging that the rules of civil procedure, especially those relating to depositions, are one-size-fits-all propositions. And there are, of course, going to be situations where adjustments need to be made to make things work. So these judges, the ones with this school of thought, are basically saying to the lawyers, make them work. These are things that the lawyers can obviously resolve between themselves, and they're not dispositive of anything. So work under 29A to make things happen without court involvement. All right. Now, Obviously, some courts take a different view, as you can imagine, about whether to pressure lawyers to use 29A or much less pressure to even encourage the use of it if the lawyers don't want to. As you know, here in just about every other situation, the outcome of a particular dispute may depend on the judge you draw. So unlike the judges in the Stevens and Robinson cases, uh, the two prisoner cases I just discussed, in this next case, a federal judge in Arizona reached a very different conclusion in a nearly identical case, in this case, uh, the Tripati decision in the show notes, the court said no stipulation, 
then no variance from the rule, period, end of story. So Tripathi is another inmate case, and in that uh, decision, the inmate wanted to take the deposition on written questions. Rule 31 essentially says to obtain a deposition on written questions, uh, then that inmate was responsible for paying the witness fee, deposition officer fee, court reporter fee, and the cost of the deposition transcript. The court in Tripathi said the inmate had not identified a duly authorized deposition officer. The inmate had not designated a time and place for such an officer to take any witness's deposition by written questions and had failed to show that he could pay the costs associated with taking depositions under Rule 31. So there, the court says, because the parties haven't reached a Rule 29 stipulation and because the inmate hadn't shown that he could comply otherwise, the pending motions relating to the plaintiff's effort to take depositions were going to be denied. All right, let's transition now to cover some practical tips to keep in mind when proposing stipulations or when receiving them. First, keep in mind that your emails can be your Rule 29 stipulation. It doesn't matter whether you say or whether you think you're making a 29A stipulation or not. That's a lesson out of the Richardson uh, decision in the Eastern District of Louisiana. There, the lawyers exchanged emails agreeing to the date and place of defense witness depositions. Court said that email exchange was sufficient to constitute a 29A stipulation, and that email exchange was a factor in an award of sanctions after defense counsel canceled those depositions unilaterally after having made that 29A stipulation. So courts are going to look to the substance of your communications or agreement. That's a point made by the Perfect Day case out of the Northern District of California. In that decision, the parties, in filing a stipulation that was ordered by the court to move discovery along, made no mention of 29A and simply said they were going to simply notify the court that they were going to take the deposition of a China-based witnesses by video. Well, the court treated that statement in the report as a stipulation under 29A and as agreement that the parties would not follow the procedure for depositions in foreign countries under Rule 28. The court treated it that way because the parties had clearly agreed uh, to stipulate to the method of deposition different from that that would otherwise be required by the rule. Court says, that's what you agreed. That's how you're going to do it. Again, the lawyers in that case didn't even mention 29A, and it's not clear they were aware that the court might treat it that way. So you've got to be mindful of what you're putting in writing or what you're telling a court because your district judge, unbeknownst to you, might be evaluating what you're telling the court or what you've put in writing that's been presented to the court in the context of 29A, whether you realize it or not. All right, second practical tip, act swiftly if your stipulation is situational, meaning it's not something that's going to apply to the entire case through the end of the litigation, because circumstances might change. That's the lesson in the Burrell case out of the Southern District of Mississippi. The lawyers there had clearly stipulated that two deponents, who were also individual defendants, would travel nearly 200 miles for their depositions to the defense counsel's office. But according to the opinion, the plaintiff's lawyer didn't then notice these depositions for another 16 months after the initial stipulation, and by that time the two deponents had been dropped as defendants. Court there said it couldn't see any reason why the defendant couldn't withdraw from the stipulation in light of the change in circumstances and the inordinate delay in noticing and taking those depositions. Third practical tip, 
be crystal clear about the terms that you're proposing that you want the opposing lawyer to say yay to. Ambiguity or incompleteness as to the terms just might sink you. In the Breston, B-R-E-S-T-A-N case out of the Central District of Illinois, the court there found that there was some discussion between the parties about possibly taking depositions a week past the discovery deadline. But in reviewing the parties' submissions, the court said clearly there was no actual agreement, just a misunderstanding by the plaintiff's lawyer as to what the defense counsel was saying. So if you're tempted, and you might sometimes be, to send an ambiguous email hoping to get something accomplished without squarely putting it in front of the opposing lawyer for a thumbs up or a thumbs down, don't do it. Maybe you sense the opposing lawyer will object, and maybe you're right. So you want to put something in writing or get agreement on something without triggering a hard reaction, so you write it in a very low-key way, almost afterthoughtish in your emails. But if your proposal isn't clear, and if you don't get a clear response, the court's likely to say that you didn't have a stipulation. Fourth practical tip. Don't assume that silence by the opposing lawyer is sufficient to amount to a stipulation. Get a clear response so you have a clear deal. If you seek a stipulation and the opposing lawyer doesn't respond, follow up. And if you still don't get a response, then either strictly comply with whatever rule governs what you're doing or seek court intervention. Fifth practice tip. If you're on the receiving end of a stipulation request, so if you're the lawyer who receives a request for a stipulation to depose a witness or witnesses using a procedure that doesn't comply with the governing rules, you should absolutely respond, respond promptly, and make crystal clear that you do object and do not stipulate. Remember, you're not required in most circumstances, unless a court tells you otherwise, to stipulate to non-standard deposition protocols. That's the lesson from the Kiera case, K-I-E-R-A. As you know, most courts are going to try to strike a fair balance between strict compliance with the rules and basic fairness or equity. So even if you are before a judge who would be otherwise inclined not to force you to stipulate to something, if the court learns that you received a request for stipulation and you sat tight and said nothing, allowing the other side to dig itself a hole, you might find your judge considering whether your silence ought to be treated as a matter of fairness as a stipulation under 29A. And that's what happened in the Cracy case, K-R-A-E-S-E. -E. Uh, in that case, the plaintiff sought to redepose a physician that had already had uh, his deposition taken. So the plaintiff files a motion to take the deposition a second time. According to the court opinion, the defendant didn't respond, uh, but did finally file something nearly 40 days out of time. In the order, the judge expressly considers out loud, uh, so to speak, whether to treat that defendant's failure to timely respond to the motion to its silence as a 29A stipulation. Now, in the end, as you see in the opinion, the court didn't actually treat it as a binding stipulation, but it was kind of a warning shot to members of the bar to timely respond to filed motions and to timely respond to requests for Rule 29A stipulations, failing which you might find yourself uh, deemed to have consented to whatever relief was being sought in the stipulation. Now, on that note, and to the contrary, at least one court did say that silence in response to a proposed 29A stipulation to conduct depositions other than as required by rule isn't consent and isn't stipulation. That's the Murray case, another federal decision out of the Central District of Illinois. In that case, the pro se plaintiff proposed an agreement to depose certain third-party witnesses without a court reporter and without someone authorized to administer an oath. According to the opinion, defense counsel in that case didn't respond at all to the proposal. 
uh, when this issue eventually wound up in front of the district judge, the judge says, look, these defendants don't have to object or not object. They don't have to say anything. In other words, the judge says the parties are entitled to have the depositions conducted pursuant to Rule 28, which outlines uh, some of the mechanics for taking depositions, and they can't be forced to do anything otherwise. So at least from the opinion in the Murray court, silence or something less than clear agreement is not a 29A stipulation. All right, uh, sixth tip. Remember that you can stipulate out of your depositions nearly anything in Rules 27, 28, 30, and 31. Now, not the oath, although I did cite cases in my book in how courts handle testimony or statements taken when no one, absolutely no one was available to administer the oath, uh, but those are rare cases and not something that you can stipulate away under 29A. So let's go through some examples again of what you can do under 29A. Um, so just to pick something at random under Rule 28, for example, there is a process you must follow when conducting a deposition in a foreign country. So a stipulation under 29A to simply do it by video can eliminate tremendous expense and complexity. Remember that the location of a deposition is where the deponent is. So even if all the lawyers are in the United States, the location of the deponent outside the country makes it subject to Rule 28's requirements, unless you simply stipulate to something like video. Now, caveat here, many countries, if you do a lot of international work, you know this, many countries have strict rules about how sworn testimony must be taken within their borders, and some of those requirements are pretty onerous. So be mindful, your stipulation might not be honored in the country of the deposition, but if you can get it done with a stipulation, the courts in the U.S. will allow it and will honor the stipulation, regardless of what the host country might have wanted you to do if you had to follow the formal procedures. All right, and as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, other examples, you can agree to going without a reporter entirely. You can agree to audio tape only and have it transcribed by a transcription service. It doesn't have to be your court reporter's office. You can agree to capture the testimony by videography alone. You can agree to have witnesses travel more than 100 miles. You can agree to more than 10 depositions and depositions longer than seven hours. There's virtually no limit to what you can agree to do. A seventh practice tip, your 29A stip can also be an agreement not to do something. That's the Archway case out of Nevada. There the lawyers agreed to postpone scheduled depositions. And when the defense could not get the plaintiff's counsel to commit to new dates, it moved for sanctions. So the defense is essentially saying, look, judge, we had dates, we agreed to move them, the plaintiff isn't cooperating and setting new ones, so we want you to do something about it. The judge says, look, maybe the plaintiff isn't timely participating, but you agreed to postpone those depositions, and that was a 29A agreement. What's the lesson there? When you agree to move depositions, you're effectively making a 29A stipulation, and you're going to be held to that if it turns out to have been a bad move for you. So beware. It's important to fully understand and appreciate that your emails are mini contracts under 29A when it comes to making agreements about depositions, and you'll be held to them. This reminds me of situations that lawyers sometimes find themselves in when they're discussing settlement by email and wind up saying just enough for the collective emails back and forth to constitute a binding settlement agreement. The way to avoid being bound is to treat the dialogue about scheduling, about how to take or postpone or reset depositions or otherwise how to set them up as a formal agreement. Treat your dialogue as the makings of a formal agreement, just like you would if you were entering into a settlement discussion. Think about what you say before you hit send. 
ask yourself, are there any terms about the way we're scheduling or setting up depositions that I've left out? Is there anything I'm making assumptions about where I might not be saying what I'm saying if I knew a problem would develop? So if you have depositions noticed, for example, and you're being asked to postpone them, demand a binding agreement to new dates before you agree to cancel the current ones. Insist that your opposing number commit to new dates as a condition to postponing the current ones. Lock that down. Don't move existing depositions without absolute agreement on replacements. And if you make agreement to allow your opposing number to conduct depositions in a way that doesn't strictly comply with the rule on the unspoken assumption that the opposing lawyer will allow you to do the same thing, lock that down as well. Don't make it just an assumption. Demand agreement and capture that in writing. All right, eighth and final practice tip on the topic of 29A. Let's suppose you get to a deposition, no reporter shows up, the opposing lawyer says, well, let's stipulate that we'll proceed with the deposition without a reporter, I'll just audio tape it and I'll swear the witness in myself. And you say back to the opposing lawyer, look, we're going to proceed with the deposition, but I object to doing it this way, I'm not going to stipulate. Keep in mind that if, if you're in that situation under Rule 30C2, you've got to make those objections on the record. In one of the cases I cite in the show notes, a lawyer did express objection to a non-standard method of taking a deposition, but the lawyer did it before the deposition began. Court in one of those cases said, look, Rule 30C2 says very clearly that if you're going to object to something about the mechanics of the deposition, you've got to do it on the record or you waive those objections. So if the lawyer has you talking about doing the deposition in a non-standard way, again, using the example of uh, court reporter failing to show for a scheduled deposition and you decide to proceed, you've got to make sure that you get those objections on the record once the deposition starts. If you express your objection to the proposed 29A stipulation in person before the deposition begins, you've waived and you've lost those objections. Do it on the record. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, As always, be sure to check out the 450-page third edition of my best-selling book, 10,000 Depositions Later, the premier litigation guide for superior deposition practice, available now on Amazon and just about everywhere else books are sold.